Hello from the members of First United Methodist Church in Royce City. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you find it meaningful and relevant. You're invited to join us for worship anytime, and you can learn more about our worship options, location, and small group opportunities by visiting our website, fumcroycecity.org. Today, we hear from our pastor, Reverend Chris Everson. May God bless you as you listen to his word proclaimed. Oh God, come to you. Coming to hear your word. Coming to take what you give us through song, through scripture, through our time together to allow us to grow as your disciples. So Lord, we pray that you let the words of my mouth And the meditation of each heart here be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. So this is the fourth Sunday of Lent. We're we're moving even closer to uh, Palm Sunday and then to celebrate resurrection on Easter Sunday. And one of the things that we're doing is that we are taking a look at, at different narratives that that we have held or that we may have held about who we think God is. You know, I'm thankful that we've done this series because, as I've said many times on a Sunday morning, a lot of the times that I write uh, these sermons, um, most of the time I find out that I'm writing them towards myself and just pray that, that somehow God uses them to hopefully help you grow in, in your faith, because it, it impacts me as well. And uh, I got uh, uh, lessons from a book that I've been reading called The Good and Beautiful God. It's a book that's been out for uh, over 10 years now. And each of the chapters helps us capture a little bit about narratives that we hold about God, some some untrue narratives and how we take those narratives and, and flip them to where we can understand exactly who God is in our lives. So we talked about how God is good instead of a God that is bad. We've talked about how even at times where we may feel like we can't trust God, that God is trustworthy because he has gone through all of this before us. And then last week and this week, we're really taking on the narrative about how bad we are. And there's no way in the world that God would give us anything that's good. Or there's no way even today that how God could love us because we are just sinners. And, and we, can, we are so far beyond God's love and grace. And we're going to talk about last week how God continues to pour out his love on us. And today we're talking about how truly, no matter what, God is crazy in love with each and every one of us. Each week we've wrapped up our sermons with a spiritual practice, a practice of spending time in silence, a practice where we are thankful for all that God has given us. And then last week we had the practice of taking a look at the 23rd Psalm and letting that be a prayer for you as you go out through your day to take that Psalm and when you have downtime to, to spend time reading it. Because when we truly look 
at the 23rd Psalm, we see a God who is generous and a God who loves us and a God who cares for us. How many of you had a chance to kind of go over the 23rd Psalm this week? Can I see some hands going up? Great. You know, I had one uh, woman come into the office and she was talking about uh, when she goes to bed at night, if she wakes up in the middle of the night, one of the things that she'll do, she'll start reciting the 23rd Psalm over and over again. And she'll, she finds out that usually if she gets through the 23rd Psalm, it takes about like two times and she's out. She remembers going back to sleep before she gets through it a second time. And if it takes longer than that, well, then she just has to get up and walk around. But she makes that a meditative thought as she goes around and as she tries to get herself calmed down to go to bed because she realizes that this is a way to kind of center herself, not on the worries or, or the troubles of the world around her, but it helps her to remember that even through all of the troubles and even through all the trials, God is there. <clears throat> one of the things that I like to do before I even take one foot out of bed in the morning, I, I do two separate things. I, I say the 23rd Psalm, but I also say Wesleyan's Covenant Prayer as kind of my, it's time to get up and get moving in the morning. You know, I'll, I'll say that in in my head, and then whenever I go to bed at night, uh, the very last thing after you know we do our little Netflix and uh, YouTube videos or whatever that we do before we go to bed, I'll say the 23rd Psalm as I'm trying to go to sleep to, again, remind me that even as I sleep, I'm in God's hands, and God is a generous God that has given me so many blessings that the least... I can do is to return that those blessings back to him. So I encourage you to continue. You know, you may do it one day out of the week. You may, able, may be able to stretch it out all seven days a week. Even if it's just one day or just, you know, two days or whatever, try to practice these disciplines to allow you to grasp a hold of the love that God has for you and hopefully will combat those narratives that we have about who God really is and those narratives that the world tries to tell us about God, but help us to grasp those promises that we have through Scripture. Well, today we are talking about how God is love. And God is love, that's one of those really generic uh, phrases that gets thrown around a lot. You know, we see it on T-shirts, we see it on bumper stickers, we see it, you know, maybe on, on the internet here or there, just God is love, God is love. And we don't really fully understand what exactly does God is love means. How does that really apply to our day-to-day -day lives? <coughs> Every analogy is a bad analogy, and I, I know that, but one of the ways that I see God's love is from a movie that I saw back in 2012 called The Odd Life of Timothy Green. It was a movie starring uh, uh, Jennifer Gardner, and it was about a, a couple of parents. And these parents tried really hard to have a child. A a and, and they went to doctors, and they had tests run and everything. And the movie opens up where they're at a doctor's office, and the doctor is telling them, I'm sorry, there's just 
nothing that you can do. And the parents, go, the, the, the couple goes home and they're crying and the dad just finally gets frustrated and says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to sit down and we are going to make a list of the perfect child. This is what our child would be like. This is what our child would do. And they started to write down, our child will be creative. Our child will be compassionate. Our child will be loving. Our child will, our child will rock. And then our child will score the winning goal for his, will score a winning goal in a game. All of these things they wrote down and then they took all of their dreams for their child and they placed it in a box and they they sat it outside and they buried it. And then that evening a big rainstorm came and it it poured on the box and uh, the the mom went to bed and uh, the dad woke up patting this lump next to him and it was this little boy that just appeared and his little boy was named Timothy and Timothy grew up uh, for a few months with this family and they poured love on him they tried to get him in the best school they tried to give him all the best advantages they even tried to get him onto a soccer team but every single time that Timothy tried to do something it wouldn't turn out like the parents wanted to but it would give a blessing beyond their wildest dreams. Then one day, as Timothy was being a water boy for the soccer team, another player got injured, and they rushed him out onto the field, and then this happened. God, he's doing that thing again. Put your arms down. Arms down.
So as the movie progresses, the mom and the dad, they start arguing because they did it wrong. They should have wrote down, score the winning goal for his team, not for the other team. But as they bickered, as they argued, it was obvious to see that they were taking this opportunity for love, to love this child, and they were using it to gain favor from those around them, from a sister who kept mocking and making fun of her, from a, from a dad who was distant, who wouldn't do anything with his own son. They were trying to place all of this power, all of this misplaced aggression on a child. And once they realized that, they realized that they missed the whole thing, is that they were just called to, to love their own child. And then they, I'll, I'll let you have a chance to watch the rest of the movie, but whenever I watch that movie, I see how we tend to do that too. I admit, I am an approval junkie. I want to have approval from everyone. Doesn't matter if I agree with you or I don't agree with you. I want you to like me. And I want to do everything that I can to earn love from those around me. It's, a, it's something that I've always grown up with, and it's something that I will probably have to fight my entire life. But here is the sad thing is that I will place that exact same approval junkie ideas or that same approval junkie um, feelings towards God, that I will want to do anything and everything that I do just so God will say that he loves me. Back in 1983, the uh, contemporary Christian group Petra came out with an album called uh, uh, Not of This World. And one of the tracks on it was a song that I listened to time and time again in my early teens and in my high school years called God Pleaser. And in that song, there's a, a chorus that says, I want to be a God pleaser, not a man pleaser, because I just want to do the things to to make my father love me. I, to, I forgot the exact words of it, but basically it was like, I want to do everything just to say, God, have God go, well done. You know, you are my child. I love you. You're awesome. Thank you for all that you do. And I realized that that became a damaging narrative for me. It made me look that I needed to do anything and everything that I could just so that God would say that he approves of me. It reminds me of a type of theology called swivel chair theology. And what swivel chair theology is like, you're standing in front of God and God is in one of those office chairs that spins around and around. And God is looking at you and smiling and loving you until you mess up. And then the next thing that God does is that he just turns around and his back is towards you. So what do you end up doing? Well you, well, you try harder. You try to do anything and everything you can to make God turn that chair around again. 
And once he turns that chair around, you feel great, and then you mess up again, and then the chair turns back around. And then the next thing you know, you're getting dizzy because you realize that in your mind, you are making God just spin around and around and around, trying as hard as you can to earn God's favor in your life. So where do you see your view of God in this situation? Are you dealing with a swivel chair narrative in your life? Are you dealing with the uh, ideas that if you just do the right thing, if you say the right phrase, if you just act in a specific way that God will approve of you. It's a performance-based religion. It's a performance-based religion, and it is wrong. It is a type of legalism. And unfortunately, living in this, this Western American culture that we live in, we are filled with such an approving narrative that we place what we have with each other onto God. And I hear it all the time. When I do Bible studies or when I'm in conversations, I hear people say, if I can just only do the right thing, then God will love me. Or when we ask the question, how do you go to heaven? They say, well, it's, it's, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this. No, God just wants you to accept his love in your life and to live in relationship with God. Our scripture for the day, uh, part of it is a very, very personal scripture for me uh, because it's part of my confirmation verse. Uh, when I was in eighth grade, and I do this with our confirmands, we pick out a scripture verse, and then that becomes a verse that is shared during our confirmation Sunday. But this was mine. The first couple of verses are part of it, but the rest of it just gives you a little bit more to understand the context of what John is writing here. It goes like this. Dear friends, let us love each other because love is from God. And everyone who loves is born from God and knows God. The person who doesn't love doesn't know God because God is love. This is how the love of God is revealed to us. God has sent his only son into the world so that we can live through him. This is love. It's not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the sacrifice that deals with our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us this way, then we also ought to love each other. That's simple. That's easy. We love because God first loved us. And that love is something that, that should penetrate our lives, that it should allow us to see each other clearly. But it's so much easier to, to not live in this way. It's easy to try to want to earn our, our way because we feel like that is what we should do. You know, if we take a look at the disciples that Jesus picked, we see that they were all 
upright and outstanding men of faith. You know, they, they never made a mistake. You know, God, Jesus took a look at each one of them and picked them because he knew that their character, the way that they held their lives was so impeccable that people would want to follow them. I'm getting some confused looks out in the congregation because you know that's not true. The disciples were some of the most messed up individuals that you could ever run across. I mean, first, Jesus picked fishermen. Fishermen were people that were sent out because they were not good enough for school, and they had to earn some kind of trade so that they could support their families. But Jesus went along the Sea of Galilee, and he saw these young boys and said, Come and follow me. Jesus even picked some men who were so hyper-religious that they wanted to do anything and everything they could to force Jesus' hand to start a revolt in Jerusalem to overtake the Roman Empire. He also picked those who were so zealous for their faith that in one moment they would stand up and say, I am following you 100% Jesus, and then when trouble came, they would turn and run away. And then there was Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. And as Matthew was working, Jesus came alongside him and said, come and follow me. And Matthew left everything Behind, and then decided to have this great party where he invited Jesus to, to come and dine with him. And as they were dining, he invited other tax collectors. And that made the Pharisees so mad. But Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven belongs to even these. And in Matthew 9, he tells a story about repentance. He tells a story about love. He tells a story about grace, about how God continues to work in the lives of those around him. Another passage that gives us a glimpse of God's love is a passage that Jesus shares with a Pharisee who comes to have a conversation with Jesus in the middle of the night because he knew that if he did it during the daylight, he would get in trouble. Nicodemus knew that there was something about this Jesus character, and he wanted to hear from Jesus what exactly he was teaching. So in the middle of the night, he came and asked Jesus how to be born again. And then Jesus gives him these words that are a reminder that we may know by heart. In John three sixteen, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is, again, one of those little bumper sticker scriptures that we like to to talk about, or even you'll see at a baseball game or football game, somebody holding a sign that says John 3, 16 on it. And it's a great reminder of God's love for us, but it doesn't give us the full picture. It gives us just a glimpse. But when we take a look at the next verse, verse 17, we can see how it makes the picture more clear for us as followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus continues and says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn 
the world, but to save the world through him. My friends, what would it look like if we proclaimed this gospel, this gospel that God did not come to, to condemn us, but he came so that we may be freed from the bonds that, that hold us back so that we can then share God's love with others. You know, if, if I am honest about who I am, I'll realize that I love to hold on to this earning narrative. So much so that there are stories in the Bible that just really eat at me. And one of them is the story of the prodigal son. The story of this, this son who had so much that he decided that he was going to take off and take his part of the inheritance and just go live life on his own. And after a while, after all of the money, after all of the materialism, after all of that stuff has gone away, he, he catches himself eating alongside pigs. And as he's trying to fight for food, he realizes that if he went back home, his dad would treat him as a slave, which is a whole lot better than, being, than eating besides pigs. So he picks himself up and he starts his way back home. And then the story goes that the dad is looking off in the distance and he sees the young man walking home, probably with his head down, just disheveled and just afraid of what's going to happen to him. But the dad just doesn't wait at the gate with his arms crossed, tapping his foot to say, I told you so. The dad takes off and he starts running towards his son who ran away. And he grabs him in his arms. He puts brand new clothes on him. He throws this huge party and everyone is happy because the prodigal son is home. Well, everyone except for me and, and, and the other brother because we know that we didn't go anywhere. We stayed. We were faithful. We kept doing what we knew that we were supposed to be doing. And we look at our Father. We look at God and say, how is this fair? And then the Father says to us, everything I have is yours. All the great gifts, all of the great love, everything around you is yours. Why shouldn't I be able to share that with my other son? My friends, we have a tendency to be like that as a church. We look outside and we say, how in the world are we expected to let others come in when we have been faithful maybe all of our lives. But God says to us that my grace is sufficient for you and I have so much that you can enjoy that I want to share that with others. It is fair. It is perfectly fair and it is fair for everyone. Brennan Manning put it this way. That Jesus comes for sinners, for those as outcasts, as tax collectors, and for those caught up in bad choices and failed dreams. 
He comes for corporate executives, street people, superstars, farmers, hookers, addicts, IRS agents, AIDS victims, and even used car salesmen. Every Christian generation tries to dim the blinding brightness of its meaning because the gospel seems too good to be true. I am thankful that the gospel is big enough for all of us. I am thankful that when we take the opportunity to grasp the good news of Jesus Christ, it, it compels us to share that good news with others. I am thankful that when I try to earn my salvation, or when I try to earn a place in God's kingdom, God looks at me through the love and grace of Jesus Christ and says, I'm enough. I am all you need. Come to me when you're weary and heavy laden, and I will give you the rest that you need. So this leads us to our next, next challenge or our next spiritual exercise. And I will have to admit, this one's probably going to be the most difficult of them all because it's actual a, a type of Bible study called Lectio Divina, which is like it's a holy reading of Scripture. And, and I've given you the entire way for you to practice this on your piece of paper, and I'll go ahead and have it posted on social media later today, on our Facebook page later today. But the first thing you do is that you find a passage, and the passage that I want you to focus on this week is 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. Now, you may be familiar with this passage because it's, it's shared at weddings all the time. I've used it for weddings. It's the love chapter, but it's not a wedding verse. It's appropriate for weddings, but when Paul wrote this passage, he wrote it for the community of faith, for them to see how they could love and how, the, how they could grow together. This is the love is patient, love is kind. It's, it's, it's that verse there. So you take it and you just spend a moment just getting ready, and then you read through the passage about three different times, giving you different prompts to follow. Have a notepad by just to, to jot down your ideas. And then it gives you a time to ponder and reflect, a time for prayer, and then a time to be still again, and then to say, how is God asking me to move through this passage? How is God calling me to respond to God's word in my life? You can do this with a whole bunch of other passages, but just give it a try just one day this week or maybe a couple of days to really reflect on this passage so that you can truly embrace the love of God in a powerful way. My hope and my prayer is that as we continue to, to battle these narratives that we have in our lives, that we see a good and beautiful God that loves and cares for us and reminds us that God's love and grace is more powerful 
than any trial, any tribulation, any difficulty that we have going in our lives right now. Let us pray. Oh God, we thank you for this narrative that you love us. And unfortunately, we take the word love and we twist it into many different uh, factions or many different views around us. Just like everything else, we have a tendency to let the world define what love is. But all we have to do is look at your word to see that true love comes from you. And while we receive that love, we are then called to love others. So God, help us. Help us to uh, take a look at the narratives in our lives and, and, and flip them so that we may open our hearts and open our hands to receive your grace for us. And we pray this in the strong name of the one who loves us and cares for us, Jesus our Lord. Amen.